Hey there, it's Antonio Jambardino, and I'm back with another episode of Who Cares If You Listen. I've got my friend Zach DeLong here. We've been waiting a DeLong time to have him on the show. <laughs> that was a terrible pun. I think I'm going to edit this out. Anyway, Zach is a new father. He's a lawyer. He's a philosopher. And he's one of my oldest chess rivals and drinking buddies. He had a set list of topics that he wanted to talk about, and I deviated pretty far from that. All I can tell you is that he's really cool, I usually enjoy his company, and I managed to provoke him into talking about a lot of extended philosophy topics that I don't think he really wanted to get into. But he has a master's in philosophy, so I shouldn't have caught him off guard with that. Anyway, I had a blast. I hope you do as well. And if not, as always, who cares if you listen? Talk about what? Okay. I don't do preamble, Zach. I don't do small talk. We, you know, get you in what appears to be your bed. I just hit the record button and let the magic happen. Well, I like it. That's a theme across your episodes so far. Just cutting the bullshit, get straight to the point. Language, Zach. This is a family podcast. Oh, I didn't realize this it's is not. G-rated. It's, I'm sorry. It's not. Okay. It's right. <laughs> it really depends on who I have on on the podcast. Like Jonathan Frazier is very kind of wholesome and, you know, Dwayne the Boozin blogger, you know. I, I labeled that one explicit because I knew that there were a few cuss words, you know, a couple of. Uh, <laughs> I really enjoyed that one. He's a very interesting guy. Very interesting guy. Very interesting guy. I've only seen him do stand up once, but part of that is just that I haven't, even before COVID, I just really didn't have like the intestinal fortitude to keep putting myself up on stage. It's a lot. He, uh, he's, plowed through a lot of, uh, I guess, re- different receptions from different audiences. But I, I love him. I think of him as like a, a letter Kenny version of Rush Limbaugh. Okay. I, I think he'd appreciate that. I hope so. I, it's meant as a compliment. <laughs> it really didn't sound like it, but sure. <laughs> so ha- so we before your internet crapped out, and first of mm. all, congratulations. You're the first one to have disconnected from one of these podcasts. I was going on about the flawlessness of technology, how great everything is been going for me. And you, my probably my most tech-savvy friend out of all of them so far. The one that... Well, I'm happy to accept that honor as your most tech-savvy friend so far, but also the honor of being the first to cut out. I'd like to thank Rogers... Can we just can we just, uh, we we all hate Rogers. I mean with a passion. Uh, all of all of the cell phone providers in Canada, I think collectively we can agree are the scum of the earth. Yes. Oh, 100%, but in Canada especially, like these people are making more profit per user in this country than in any other. Is that a fact? And there seems to be no ability to rein them in. What just happened? Yeah, and whenever and and whenever we try to impose any kind of restrictions on their monopoly, effectively, 
the argument is always, well, if you would just let us do work in Toronto and Montreal and Vancouver and then, you know, leave Labrador and Nunavut to their own devices, it wouldn't be so expensive. It's because of how yeah. benevolent we are to have cell phone towers everywhere in the land. Utter nonsense when the data shows they're still making more per user despite having to serve these rural areas. There you go. I mean, we could, as lawyers, presumably, put their feet to the flame and hold them to account. But let's face it, we don't want to. Yeah, I'm too lazy. It's exhausting. <laughs> fighting, fighting against the man is tedious work. Well, and if I fix these problems, what would I bitch about? I mean, there'd be other problems, I would hope. I don't know if I hope is the right word. I imagine... Yeah, why take that risk? There's a possibility that you just fix all the problems. We live in a utopian society, and then you have nothing to complain about. That's my biggest concern, I think, yeah. All right, well, let me start by complaining about something. You have Please. a one-month-old son who apparently is sleeping as well or better through the night than my 18-month-old twins. From the sounds of it, significantly better. Like, I, it sounds like you're getting 90-minute stretches at best. I don't think I've had REM sleep in over a year. Like, there was definitely... So last night, as an example, I went to go play tennis. I came back 9 o'clock-ish. I went, plowed through some work, didn't get anything done during the day because the kids were screaming. Um... Played video games till about 12.30 in the morning. Okay, that's on me, you know. <laughs> then I go I go to bed along quarter past, quarter to one, I should say. Had a couple of Diet Cokes, maybe a Red Bull earlier in the day. So I'm still wired. I don't think I fall asleep till about maybe 1.15 or so. Then at 2, Pierre-Louis wakes up. I got to bring him to bed, give him a drink passed out maybe 2.30-ish, woke up at 4 yelling. Uh, I managed to kind of soothe him back to sleep, woke up at 6 again, and uh, here I am. Oh, boy. That is that is my every night. So I've read that delirium tremens sets in when people who drink too much alcohol are cut off from REM sleep because they can't sleep deeply enough when they're drinking alcohol all the time. So you start to hallucinate because your dream state is imposing itself onto your waking state. And I'm just wondering if you've experienced that and uh, what it was like. So how does one's dream state impose itself on the waking body? Because that sounds fascinating. Like, do, do I see the walls melting? Am I able to suddenly leap tall buildings in my mind while in actual quote-unquote real life run my head into the plaster well i was hoping you'd tell me but my understanding is it happens through visual and auditory hallucinations i haven't noticed anything out of the ordinary but it's one of those truman show type things right yeah like where are you right now I, you don't even necessarily know that you can all, trust yourself for all i know there is no zach there is no podcast i don't have a basement in my house and i'm just rolling around in the pipework somewhere yeah 
talking yeah. to a piece of pipe that happens to look like a microphone. There's no such thing as Facebook. I haven't gotten any feedback from my non-existent friends about my non-existent podcast. Everything is just the matrix. It's just complete simulacrum. Okay, let's go into a couple things here. So, um, your kids aren't sleeping. I have a friend who I used to curl with. He wrote to a magazine. I don't remember what magazine. I think it was Parenting Magazine. Could he have said, been Penthouse. You know, here's the situation. Maybe penthouse, yeah. Sexy stories about trying to get his kids to sleep. <laughs> that just took a real NC seventeen turn. I apologize for that. Uh, the magazine said, you know, what you're experiencing is crazy house. You need a sleep consultant. We're going to pay for your sleep consultant and write about it. Uh, so that might be an avenue to explore. No, 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 no. And I'll tell you why. Okay. So we found the sleep consultant, and because you and I both know about libel law, I declined to mention this individual's name or business, except to say that I paid probably what I could have gotten an ex new Xbox for in terms of hiring her for her sleep consulting services, which included Damn. one call over Skype followed by a sleep regiment where I'm supposed to put the kid into his crib. This is the guy who was at Chio and he's born, was there for three weeks, has never really slept a full night ever in his life. And she's like, Oh my God. And needs a bottle every night to be put to sleep before I can pick him up and put him in his crib. She said, Just put him in the crib, sit next to him, offer him reassuring words. And then eventually he'll, you know, he'll be some tears the first night. She commented. But after after like an hour or so, he's gonna fall asleep, and then success. Easy, so easy. So here I am, about ninety minutes into the first night, I'm putting him in after bath and reading him a story, giving him a bottle, and he is absolutely screaming, like I could have been putting hot coals on his feet. He would not have been shrieking any harder. It was terror for him. This kid Yikes. is like depending on you to soothe him to sleep. And he is just having a meltdown. And finally, he just vomited all over himself and his crib and the nursery floor. And I said, well, that tears it. I Tonight's a write-off. I had to, you know, clean, you know, put him to bed somewhere. Uh, get him to bed next to Kate clean down the nursery, kind of mop up everything in the evening. Then I wrote to the sleep consultant. I said, all right, all right, all right. This isn't working. You know, projectile vomit. Like, we need another solution. And she says, well, no. You know, I understand it was really frustrating for you. First of all, she started the email with, thank you so much for your email, which is what I say to people in litigation as like a starting, like, all right, here's my teeth. I'm ready for you. Um... Thank you for your email. I understand that that was a frustrating night for you, but you really have to like plow through the vomit. I, she didn't say plow through the vomit, Gross. but that's my summary. Right. Basically what she's saying is if you don't, if, if you just put him back into your bed and give him a bottle like you did every single night, he's going to learn that he can get what he wants by vomiting on you. Yeah, he's using vomit as a tool of manipulation, obviously, Antonio. Like, the, do babies have 
11 months old even have that kind of cognition? That's what I do when I'm trying to negotiate with Rogers. I just vomit on everybody I have to talk to. There was that guy at a Philadelphia Phillies game. He was from New Jersey, as all great human beings are. And he he got really angry because someone told him to stop heckling. And then he force vomited on a guy and his daughter who were out there enjoying a Phillies game. He managed to just, like, stick some fingers down his throat and barf on them. And what he didn't know was that the father was an off-duty police officer. Oh, my goodness. I'm sure he had a proportionate reaction. It was very proportionate. I don't remember the exact, you know, I'm breaking form for my podcast, but man vomits at Billy. <laughs> We're Googling it. Okay. This was, this was 10 years ago. My God. A New Jersey man is facing charges after police say he intentionally vomited on an 11-year-old girl and her father in the stands during a Phillies game. Matthew Clemens of Cherry Hill, New Jersey, was charged with assault, reckless endangerment. Endangerment's a little much. Yeah, it's, well, it's, it's uh, other humans' fluids. Like, you don't know what's in there. Ah, fair. According to an account in the Philadelphia Daily News, Clemens and his friend were asked by the 15-year-old daughter of Michael Vangelo, an off-duty police captain, to stop cursing and spitting. A short while later, Vangelo said it started again. One guy started spitting. First, it landed on the back of my daughter's chair. Then it landed on her hooded sweatshirt. After he reported the incident to stadium officials, Clemens' friend was let out of the stadium. At that point, Vangelo said Clemens said he would spit be sick and put two fingers down his throat he leaned forward and started vomiting on us oh my god four or five i was impressed at first that he could vomit on command he just threw his fingers down his throat that's not impressive at all four or five fans in the next section rushed to help they held him until police arrived someone punching him in the face as he tried to break free all right you know what under the circumstances i'd say that is relatively tempered that's a, just a whole a whole messed up situation. This is why I can't go to sports events. But what I'm trying to say is I, I can't draw a parallel between this fine, upstanding citizen of Cherry Hill, New Jersey, and my <laughs> then 11-month-old son, Pierre, who I don't no. think was deliberately shoving fingers down his throat trying to, you know, dominate me with his projectile vomit. But that's what your sleep consultant insisted on, and so I gather you terminated that contract. You know, she said no refunds in her contract, and part of me would say, well, what if I just tried to fight that in court? What if I tried to sue her? What if I tried to drag this out just to spite her, you know? I could probably get yes. some of that money back. But then, that was the old me. I'm really trying to leave that kind of mindset and that sort of worldview behind me of trying to constantly be embroiled in conflict. Yeah, I mean, I, I think there is a version of this situation where you could you could have an adversarial reaction. I mean, you shouldn't do that. You should, you should move on to the extent that uh, that makes your life easier. But it sounds like you might have some some means of going forward through the Consumer Protection Act. Like I don't know 
how those services are categorized, but you might be mostly able to... lit mostly litigation. I mean, unless you want to do something stupid like go to the Better Business Bureau and you know they'll say, well, she you'd, you'd, you'd have to litigate. I'm just saying you might be entitled to a refund under that act, and I, I, I then think it's I not might, you just. I think I might be, and I don't want to speculate wildly and give myself legal advice on a podcast. Right. But I might be. But then I have and to given ask myself, that, Yeah, I don't think it's ridiculous to pursue a refund given that you're entitled to it and Parliament thinks you should have it. Nah, or the legislature, I guess. Queen's Park or whatever. I don't know. Yeah. Nah. Do you still have the Kronk-style Sarsaparilla Ale? Are we doing this today? Is that happening? That's Yeah, so do you want to tell the story? I have it sitting next to me. Amazing. So this is from... The Nita Beer Company. Shout out to Nita Beer. They are not a sponsor. I just happened to buy alcohol from them. And Great brewery. Uh, we first went there for your birthday party. You know, sort That's of right. adult Chuck E. Cheese. Um, back in, what year was that? 2013, 14, 15? Hard to say, not knowing. Oh, you... So we went there, and they even made a custom chess beer label because they knew we were going to do your annual birthday chess tournament. Yeah, I still have that bottle. Beautiful. And I've been going back ever since because it happened to be the closest brewery to my house, and I really enjoyed it. That's how it should be. Everyone should have their neighborhood brewery. I used to have Broadhead, and then Broadhead decided that they wanted to move out to Orleans, and so now Nita is the closest one again. (laughs) Thank God, because Praise that really him. sucks. I don't know. I like uh, I like their blueberry beer. Catherine was a big fan of it, and I definitely enjoyed the taste of blueberry. Mm, me too. And I come from the land of the blueberry ale in New Brunswick. There is a brewery called Pump House. And I think they've been making the blueberry ale for like 40 years, think they're one of the longest to make it in Canada, and it's delightful. I love a good blueberry beer, but to me, Broadheads is just a ripoff. Fair. Fair. I got nothing to say to that except that uh, I hope they don't listen to this because they might, I don't know, send a strongly worded tweet. Yeah, I mean, who cares if they listen? (laughs) I love it. Someone else said it instead of me. I'm so excited. I'm choking on my saliva. <laughs> if I did any sort of post-production editing, I would get rid of that, but I didn't, and I won't. <laughs> good. That's good, candid stuff. I, this is what people want. It's raw. It's real. And I was really excited that we finally managed to make this happen because it seemed like our schedules kept overlapping and colliding and crashing into each other. Yeah, thanks for your perseverance. I'm concerned about the title in a way, though. I feel like it belies a level of insecurity about the project. You're, you're cutting yourself off from criticism by saying, I don't care about any anybody. I don't care about the audience. I'm just doing this for me. I mean, to a certain extent, I think that kind of mindset was necessary for me. And, and I'll explain to you why. I see a lot of podcasts where people, first of all, Anchor.fm, where I'm hosting this, Someone said that the average podcast on their website gets to three episodes, and then it oh wow, and then it dies. People give up on it. You 
if this gets uploaded successfully, will be episode seven by my count. Really? I've only seen three on Spotify where I've been listening. I only release one a week, so I built up a cache of them in September, and I started releasing them the first Tuesday in October, and then I'm just going through them one by one by one so that you know I'm not scrambling to meet a deadline with podcasting. That's just another thing that adds stress to my life. But, right. but the thing was, for me, I'm trying to get away from that cycle that we have on social media where I'm constantly looking at how many likes I have, how many shares a meme I put up gets, uh, how many retweets you get if you're a Twitter person. Because I feel like chasing that kind of instant validation not only promulgates unhappiness, but it also means that you're constantly chasing to the crowd and clamoring for what other people will find meaningful. I wanted to produce something that I found meaningful, and I feel like if I stick to that, eventually I may gain a following. I may find people who are on the same wavelength as me who want to listen to what I have to say. But in the meantime, I don't want to get tied up with the fact that I don't have enough listeners that I only got 40 people that listened yeah. to the last episode because that's a recipe for either giving up very quickly, which is what's happened to every other artistic project that I've ever undertaken in my life, or it's a recipe for bending to the whims of what other people tell you your podcast should be about or what your, your identity or voice should be. That sounds like a healthy attitude for pursuing the project. And, but I just wanted to say, like, I don't know if the insecurity is found well founded, if there is any, it sounds like you've got a whole philosophy for why you're doing this. And that's great. But I really enjoyed the podcast so far. I think it's impressive the level to which you're able to uh, listen and engage and respond to uh, all the audience, or I guess guests that you've had on so far. And uh, yeah, I think you've carved out a bit of a niche for yourself too. I I welcome any and all flattery, whether or not I believe it is warranted. So thank you. You have you have There's seen... very natural rhythm to the episodes I've listened to so far, where you talk about something that person's doing, kind of like everyday type stuff. Then they talk about an interesting project in their life, and then you talk about sort of big world topics like politics or other important issues. And I think uh, the ones I've heard so far have flowed really nicely. Amazing. So now that we've had six very successful, very well-organized episodes, here come the train wreck, right? That's why I'm here. Amazing. Amazing. So I do want to try this. No one can see this because I followed your advice and decided to make my podcast audio only, which was very liberating. So no one can see that. you're liberated. No one can see your mega hat or your wireless headphones. (laughs) I mean, this is great because the first episode was so much just John commenting on the video. It really painted a picture for me. Uh, I almost want to do that. Like I want to have a podcast that's just a docent going through an art gallery describing everything they see and not showing any of it. That's how it felt to me, the first podcast. Well, it's, but the, the look, real... I've got... All right, Go ahead. Lay it on me. What do you got? No, I was going to change the topic. Let's hear your response to what I just said. I was just going to say, John had this book. It was a biography of Woody Allen. 
and or a memoir. I don't know what the difference between a biography and a memoir is, but we never managed to actually say the title because he kept flashing it on the screen. And I'm like, well, that's good enough. And then post-production, I'm like, I'm so sick of dealing with video and it's so jerky and it looks terrible. And it was just frustrating yeah. me. And I'm like, I don't watch video podcasts. So who am I making this for? Perfect. That's the way to go. You know your audience because you are the audience. This is for you after all. It's got to be meaningful for you. Beautiful, beautiful. Now, listen, I've got my Kronk style ale. It's unopened because I wanted to get the audio of opening it. Oh, we're doing some ASMR. I love it. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I don't know how to do ASMR, but I imagine it involves whispering. No, it's a lot of like really moist sounds. Like, they get really deep into the microphone. Somebody's going to be triggered by that. Oh, yeah. I'm almost triggered. It sounds okay, like I'm squishing macaroni and cheese with my hands. <laughs> that, yeah, that doesn't sound like a great noise to me. But this. Okay, you ready for this? I'm ready. Moment of silence. That didn't work. Hold on. One more, one more time. <laughs> Here we go. It didn't make a sound. That was really anticlimactic. Shame on you. This episode, okay. we're 25 minutes in. It's been nothing but an abject disappointment. I love it. Really? That's harsh, man. I've been so <laughs> supportive of you. <laughs> oh, all right. So what's your thoughts about this fragrant bouquet? Yeah, what does it smell like? There's a really distinct smell. Is it like pickled beans? Is that what it smells like? I've already told you what I thought about the about this brew. I smell notes of olive brine and, mm, and olive brine. Yeah, I smell notes of olive brine and when I drink it, you know, I'm, obviously I want to get your first encounter with it. But my thought was fizzy, boozy prune juice. Yeah, first sip I get the olive brine at the front end, followed by some molasses sweetness, and then a bit of a prune juice at, at the finish. So how is there a front end? Is it literally the front of your tongue? Can you taste it motion? What you're describing is science. A realm of knowledge I've never entered into. Yeah, you're not a particularly like uh, scientific mind. Smart. Well, <laughs> I was trying to find a euphemism for it, but here we are. Right. Yeah, I would say I'm not the most observant. Um, science tends to involve looking at the world, mm -hmm. and I'm not into that. I'm into thinking about things and removing myself from the world. You were going to explain to me what metacognition was and that sounds like oh, something Jesus. only a very sciencey kind of person could do or at least someone that uses big words to belie the fact that he doesn't know very much about science yeah the latter category that sounds more like me you know a postmodernist um, but i'm gonna pivot away from that because that sounds like a quagmire let's talk about cronk style ale all right lay it on me well, do you want to talk about why we're doing this podcast? Like, I'm curious 
why you wanted me on it because you lured me on to this podcast by giving me this bottle of beer and saying I couldn't drink it until we recorded this thing. Now we're recording it. I've opened the beer and I'm terribly disappointed, uh, as apparently are you with the podcast so far. So I was terribly, been, uh, I was terribly disappointed with the first one I had. This is the second one that I've had. And by now I knew what to expect. So in a way yeah, it's like I was anticipating boozy prune juice. And I have to say, I love 99% of what the Nita brewery puts out here. I've never had a Kronk style ale. So perhaps as far as Kronk style ales go, this is fantastic. Hard to say. I think they were obviously constrained by Dr. Ferguson's formula. We should uh, report Dr. Ferguson to the College of Physicians and Surgeons and point out that he's uh, peddling alcohol to unsuspecting beer drinkers. And holding himself out as a medical doctor when I'm not sure that he is. He might just have a PhD in art history. We don't know. Right. By the taste of this beer, I don't think he has a PhD in chemistry. I mean, he might be a medical doctor if we assume that this tastes like hospital food. Right. Apparently, sarsaparilla was thought to have medicinal properties, and so a lot of drinks would include it for that purpose. But I think everything was believed to have medicinal properties back in the day. Like, didn't people chew on right. willow bark, uh, which I guess was proto-aspirin? And one of the prime ministers of Canada died in England, and he was having a stroke, and Queen Victoria's physician suggested that he have a glass of brandy because that was a sort of cure-all for not feeling well. Brandy for a stroke. That's a new one to me, yeah. yeah spoiler alert, like it. it didn't work. <laughs> Damn. If only it had. I just feel like we should study it some more. We've never actually done a double-blind test on it. We should. I agree. Yeah, we need the a good clinical trial, double blind, large sample size, etc. We can't we, say anything conclusively until that's happened. We've never used hydroxychloroquine for colicky babies. Now, now we're talking. So you need to get Trump in on that so he can push it for you. Oh, dude, why do you gotta bring up Trump? Why are we Why are we doing partisan? Politics? You did. I didn't. I brought up hydroxychloroquine as I often do. <laughs> in conversations with all of my friends. Right. Yeah. Trump does come up too often. Do you know how many of my friends go on safari and catch malaria? I mean, it's completely apropos of nothing that you would bring up Trump. You, you Democrat bloggers always going on and on about your tribalism and your politics. Shame. Yeah. Yeah, that sounds right. Right. So, are, so you, are you watching any of that? I, I'm trying to very deliberately kind of ignore everything both north and south of the border that has anything to do with partisan politics at this point. Yeah, I'm afraid my aversion to science extends to politics as well, and I just have no idea what's going on in the world. You're going to have to dial the sarcasm back just a little bit because I'm having a hard time <laughs> following whether you're being sincere or not. <laughs> Yeah, no, me too. I, I honestly don't know. I just say things. Okay, okay. Um, I was not being sarcastic. I am almost two months into fatherhood, and I have not been able to follow the news. 
I got really into podcasts as a listener when my kids were born because I was constantly hyper vigilant as to, you know, one of them's going to wake up every 90 minutes. So I have to go get a bottle for one or the other and putting one AirPod in and just having somebody have a conversation to entertain me during those very long, tedious nights was kind of like the only outlet to the outside world that I had. Yeah, that makes sense. What were you listening to? What were your favorites? What I started with was Bill Burr's Monday Morning Podcast. And you have to be in the right mood to listen to him yell and rant and swear. And there were days where it's like, I'm already angry enough. You're just putting gasoline on my flames. Right. That's not healthy. But then there's other days where you just wanted someone else to complain right alongside you and say all the angry things that you couldn't even conjure up in the deep annals of your brain. Right. And I'm sure it's cathartic on those days, but then there's ones like Freakonomics. Every now and then I would listen to Joe Rogan, although, you know, a two and a half hour podcast is really a bit much. You kind of chop it up into like seven or eight days at that point. Yeah. And I feel like it's just kind of a cruel practical joke. Like Joe Rogan is just wondering what if I took all of the, most well-known people in the world, experts in different topics, celebrities, and just ask them all if they've done acid. Not acid, DMT. DMT, that's what he's really into, right. He's licking the toe, clown. Do you not like DMT? Because you're really into psychedelia and all that kind of jazz, right? You like drugs. Uh, Yeah, like I said, I'm into the mind and separating myself from reality, so... It's that theme perfectly. Never done DMT, though. No? Is that on your bucket no. list? Oh, it should be, probably. Yeah. But I wouldn't even know where to seek it out. I mean, it comes from a frog, doesn't it? Right. So I'll just start licking frogs until eventually I find until my Until one of them is poisonous. I think that's the easiest way to do it. <laughs> yeah. Easy. I'm glad we figured this out. This is what we're here for. We're problem solvers. We're just... Uh, Troubleshooting solutions to life. Uh, we got to do something. All your other guests have had like some interesting thing, like a project that they've been doing that you ask them about, and I'm just like here to shoot the shit. You're extremely interesting, Zach. I don't want you to sell yourself short. I mean, oh, well, thank you're you. you're the second person that I've had on that was a fellow lawyer, and I absolutely don't want to talk shop because I don't find anything that we do for a living to be interesting whatsoever. Yeah, good. With no offense intended. Good call. No. Uh, but before that, you did a master's in philosophy. And, I mean, I thought I knew philosophy because I had that one grade 12 teacher that kept annoying me with Plato's Cave for, like, an entire right. semester. And it's like, oh, yeah, philosophy is just people with cardigans who are really annoying. <laughs> I like that one. Actually, no, I had the cardigan. He had a turtleneck sweater. I think you're just thinking of grad students generally. Like at one point I asked him, I'll never forget, we had to write for our final exam um, an essay on natural law. And the week before the exam, he told us natural law was going to be on it. And I'm like, we never covered that in class. What's natural law, Mr. Conklin? And he kind of leans back and he's like, if I told you what it is, I don't think you'd get the same educational value as if you figured out what it is for yourself. 
Mm. And then the next semester, I had my grade 12 Canadian law class where in the first lecture, the teacher told me what natural law was. And I gained a lot more from that than I ever did from, you know, Mr. Remote Learning kind of pull yourself up by your bootstraps philosophy teacher. And this is probably the difference between you and I. Like, for me, I'm very deep. I'm very philosophical. So I can appreciate all the nuance and deep meaning in him saying, learning something isn't a good way to learn it. Whereas you're a scientist, so you think, seems the best way to gain information is probably to be given that information. And that's just overly um, simplistic. So once again, your sarcasm level is of like an 8.5 right now. I need you to dial it back to like a 4. <laughs> you're right. Yeah, you're right. I, uh, I'm cursed because my dad is this way, and I've never been able to know when he's telling the truth or not. And so through nature and nurture, I am unable to communicate in a straightforward way. Are we doomed to be our fathers? I had this conversation with someone a few days ago where – I interact with my kids in the same kind of smart-ass way that my dad interacted with me. And it's not necessarily always the best thing, but it's like, that's your role model. That's who you follow. And it's like, it's really hard to get out of those patterns if it's even possible. That's a deep philosophical question. And you're a deep philosophical guy, so that works out perfectly. Uh, yeah. I have no idea what the answer is. And... I honestly think it should be a straightforward empirical question. There's no reason to think anything more about it. The nice thing about philosophy is we can cordon off the areas that are worth thinking about from the areas that just require some science. And if they require some science, apply the science. Stop talking to me about it. I don't care. Just figure it out. That's a very unsatisfying answer for me, Zach. Is this what you did in your why. master's program? Yeah, pretty much. So it was the idea that there are certain, call them epistemological planes, where we can just use our five senses and whatever tools we have to figure out the quote-unquote truth. And then there are other planes where perhaps the truth we are seeking is not an empirical truth, is not something that can be readily analyzed or distilled. And then philosophy is kind of the placeholder to discover those kinds of truths. Exactly. So one of my courses, my master's, was about causation. Scientists don't use this notion and haven't since the early 20th century and Bertrand Russell wrote a famous essay about this in the 20s saying scientists have moved away from this they use physicists at least use this idea of one microstate determining the microstate that comes after it so it's this determination relationship that is more clearly defined because you have a physical area that's circumscribed as well so the microstate A determines the microstate B, whereas in causation, we haven't circumscribed that area. So there's all these background assumptions that are operating when we say, I caused the 
pen to fall off the desk or whatever. Uh, it's imprecise. It's unclear. And it's only survived in our everyday parlance. It hasn't survived serious, rigorous thinking. And so it doesn't have a use in conversation or should we purge our conversation of it? That's a kind of uh, question that I think the philosophical method can be applied to. So what exactly is the difference between determination and causation? I mean, at least the way that we're using it in casual English, I would say if something was determined by your state of being versus you caused something, it's a question of agency. Is that what it is? Or am I missing something broader in there? Uh, yeah, I think there's something missing there. So a Rube Goldberg machine has the different elements, one causing another without agency. Okay. Right? Like the bowling ball rolls across the the large dominoes and the dominoes knock over. Hit the over bird right. who hits the horn, who yeah. hits the anvil. Exactly. Yeah. Those are all causing each other without agency. The only difference between the one causing the other versus the one determining the other is that the Rube Goldberg machine would have to be in um, a micro state. It would have to be in a, a room where you've controlled every single variable and you can say with certainty what will happen at each stage of the machines unfolding such that you know the humidity in the room, you know the oxygen level, you know every single detail about that room and you can calculate mathematically uh, how the, each element of that room will change from one second to the next. So it's just a level of um, knowledge and um, circumscribing your your uh, defined area. Causation, I'm talking about the whole world and just saying uh, the fan caused the papers to blow away, but I haven't defined anything. I've just talked about the interaction between two things uh, and just left the rest as background assumptions for the person listening to fill in. Yeah, but isn't that just how we generally communicate? I mean, I, I, I guess I understand the point that you're making, but at the same time, I mean, isn't that just linguistic shorthand? Like, can't we understand at some sort of a deep subconscious or intellectual level that everything is dependent on the fact that we live on planet Earth and we have a certain amount of gravity and we have a certain amount of humidity and we have a certain amount of oxygen without having to explicitly kind of hammer in all of those details to say one thing leads to another. I think that's tempting and that's why we still use the term, but it is in a way very misleading. So for instance, if it were the case that the papers wouldn't blow by the fans operation, had the humidity level been 5% higher, would I say, Oh, the humidity caused the papers to blow because had it been higher, the papers would have stayed. Well, the fan was exerting pressure on them to blow. And in your argument, it's a lack of humidity. Had there been more humidity, it would have stopped them from blowing. So if my expectation was, that the fan is going to blow those papers, and then I say, huh, my expectation of causation was subverted. The paper is still there. Why is that? Well, all of a sudden, the cause is really just referring to the locus of, of, of my own perception. I expected the papers to blow away. The papers have not blown away. Ergo, 
I ascribe that agency or that value to the humidity. And so here we are playing with our background assumptions in a way that's normal. So if your expectations were different and you ran that fan every day and the papers never went anywhere, and then one day they did, you'd say, oh, shoot, I wonder why that happened. And you could investigate it and learn that, oh, in fact, the humidity was lower than it normally is. And you would probably say in common parlance that the humidity caused the papers to blow. But here we have the same event happening and you're using different language to describe it because of uh, a set of background assumptions that one might have no insight into unless they've lived your whole life. I mean, this takes me back to my time in grad school where, you know, we were doing cultural studies and postmodernism and it felt like at a certain point, nobody could say anything about anything without getting into the dear diary of postmodernism and talking about their background ad infinitum, right? You know, if I'm going to watch the films of M. Night Shyamalan, I need to do it from the perspective of a white heteronormative male who has been inculcated in Catholicism and grew up in Canada and is in the Anglosphere and is a perpetuator of colonialist ideology or something like that, where all these things that may be implicit to a sophisticated audience now, not only do we spell them out, but they're kind of, they're kind of the point. You know, I it was I remember going to a humanities conference where it's like, okay, well, I'm a woman of color and I'm in a wheelchair, so I'm going to look at this topic within the frame of disability studies and, and race and race theory. Or I am a homosexual male and I'm reading this book and I'm going to analyze it through the lens of queer theory, even if that may not be relevant to the text itself. So it becomes this place where there are all these background filters. There are all these background things that are operating, but do they? Do we necessarily need to spell them out? Does that provide us with some sort of explanatory power that we didn't have before? Yeah, and I think you just summarized the question well. In a case like that, I do think you're perspective has uh, explanatory power and when you're doing a liberal arts degree you're encouraged to examine not only your own perspective but the perspective of the person who's uh who's writing your reading or whose history you're interpreting or whatever the case may be and i think those are helpful critical tools but in this case i think we're talking about something uh fairly different so if we're talking about like the physical realm we're talking about physics we're talking about the natural world i mean is there a point where in your determination model we have to be so specific about all the preconditions about the realm that we somehow become crippled where we can't explain anything uh, i think it's this is conceptual analysis that is the methodology of philosophy as that's how I think of it. And so I want to analyze the concept of causation and ask myself questions about how it's used and how I can uh, change the way I use language to be more informative. And I think the starting point is just to investigate the different ways in which causation is used and get a catalog of examples that you can look at and think about. 
And so I've given you the example of two, the same event happening in two different scenarios where we'd use causation in different ways right? Uh, because of background facts. But there's lots more examples of problems with causation that uh, are worth thinking about and I think give us a richer sense of how we use the word and what it means. Like, it's interesting to me that we have normative ways in which causation is used. So there's a, a paper by a guy named Joshua Nobe. He's a psychologist, I think, and philosopher. He pointed out that if you've got a cup of pens, say, in fact, a secretary's desk, and you're walking by and you grab a pen because you, uh, you work in that office, and the cup of pens clearly says, please take a pen if you work in this office. Say you're down to the last two pens in the cup. And someone who is not from the office takes the second to last pen. And then the someone who is from the office. Wow. I thought you told me no puns I before said this you started. couldn't do puns. Right. But your puns are just great. That was a great one. <laughs> sure. You're right, though. It's the penultimate pen. A, a second person comes by, though. They're from the office. They're allowed to take the pen, and they take it. Now there's no more pens. Third person comes by from the office. He wants a pen. He can't get one. Who caused there to be no pens? Well, everyone who took most a pen. Most people. Everyone who took a pen. I think that's exactly right. But most people would say, and they're Joshua Nobe did a survey on this. Most people say the thief, the guy who wasn't part of the office, caused that person not to have a pen because he took a pen he wasn't entitled to take. Right, but that's assigning fault. I don't know if that's the same as causation. Yeah, and that's a fair question. But the fact that most people who are competent English speakers say cause tells us something about the way we use the word cause. That is interesting. I, or, mean, I do like and maybe the hair. concept cause. I do like splitting hairs about language, so I can I can get behind that. Yeah, I hope it's more than splitting hairs. I think it's something about the concept that's interesting, but maybe not. Well, I mean, I guess insofar as language is only used by humans, and so we have to study how we actually use it to understand what exactly it means, and so it's always going to be imprecise and polysemic because everybody is going to use the word in a slightly different way so that we can't say that there's some big O objective meaning for any of these words. That's why we have irregardless in the dictionary. <laughs> yeah, and uh, like... If that's all it is, then I don't think it's really philosophy, and we ought to move on, because the point is to clarify a concept, not to study the use of language. You don't want to just argue semantics and just be a sophist? Yeah, I'm happy to let Brian Garner have his prescriptivist dictionary and oh, tell me what words have become no, mainstream. No, he did and Who's Brian Garner? Uh, so Garner has a dictionary that uh, is an answer to this problem of people using language in different ways. So you talked about irregardless. A descriptivist dictionary is going to just take on board that word once enough people use it because you're describing the use of the language. And you're saying this has become a common enough word that I can include it in my dictionary. But a prescriptivist will try to distinguish between 
what's right and wrong in the use of language. And so Garner's method is he assigns a certain number of like dots, I think they are, to the use of a word. So if you are using the word irregardless, and it's not common, and it's widely regarded as a mistake, you get one dot, maybe, if it's, if it's widely used enough to even hit that threshold. And then as more and more people use it, he assigns it more dots, and then eventually irregardless becomes a mainstream part of the language, and it gets five dots or is no longer assigned dots anymore. But it's a, it's a way to be able to say there are right and wrong ways to use words, and uh, I'm going to prescribe those. Well, it's not even that they're right or wrong. I mean, if to use your irregardless example, it's just that enough people are using it, so now it's it's become. I mean, that sounds more that sounds more fair than some jackass at Merriam-Webster suddenly deciding, as though by royal proclamation, that something that was not a word is now a word because I have so saith and I have put it in the holy dictionary. Well, I guess that's it. The descriptivist um, maybe has less of a methodology, but... It's as opposed to prescriptivist, right? I mean, that's it's, it's but, an opposition. But the that. prescriptivist is, yeah, but the prescriptivist is trying to say there is a difference between my using the word irregardless and being one of a group of people that is wrong and then crossing that bridge and being uh, one of a group of people who is is right by virtue of it becoming popular. Yeah, I mean, what is language except people saying stuff that they heard somebody else say? Great question. Is it? I don't know. <laughs> all of the all of the insecurity neurons in my brain are firing right now. I feel like this is a very boring conversation. Does that make you insecure? Are you worried that people won't like us if we're boring? It does. Yeah, it does. I don't talk about myself for very long ever because of this exact insecurity. That's very interesting. I want to. Hear I don't know that it is. I want to we hear more about on. this. Why are you so insecure talking about yourself? I think you're interesting. I wouldn't have had you on otherwise. I'm glad. I was really glad that uh, our grand tour got a shout out. I think that's a very interesting thing that we did. Did I talk about it? I don't even. I mean, I I I, you know, I I drop it in conversation very casually. I do love the Grand Tour. I uh, yeah. The first one was from my house all the way to Parliament Hill. The second one was from your old place, all the way to the Nordique. Although we did cheat a little bit along the way. Um. I noticed that whenever you organized our walking drinking tours, they are always focused around really thoughtful. Uh, beer selections or restaurants and they were done with a view of the selection and the beer and maybe even the food to a certain extent whereas mine were just like sheer excursions of the human will to just walk across a barren highway as long as you could just to say that you could and that's how you brought it up in the context of uh, comparing yourself to Dan Nadeau on the third episode. Ah, okay. Now I'm I'm sort of remembering that. But we need to do this because originally you were going to book off time and work in June. And we were going to go from my house all the way to the Ottawa Red Blacks CFL season opener. 
and we were going, which would have been amazing. It would have been amazing. The first stop would have been the Lone Star, and we would have gone the entire length of Bank Street northbound all the way to, I'm going to say Kettleman's Bagels, and then probably get to Lansdowne around four o'clock. So we'd have to do about a good three hours of tailgating still after having been drinking since 11 o'clock in the morning. And then that's after, like my ideal day. And then afterwards, sit down to watch a football game where presumably, you know, by virtue of social pressure, you got to get some got to get some barley pops while you're there. Hell yeah. I, mean, uh, I think that would have been a hilarious game of football to watch. It probably would have involved a lot of bathroom breaks. Um, and actually, I can probably imagine that experience vividly because I've had a similar one. When I went to Vegas with a friend of mine, um, his name's Evan. I know we... Evan. Yeah, you know Evan. I know Evan. Um, I have him on Facebook. He's a cool guy. He's he's a super he's cool a guy. fitness trainer now or something or a bodybuilder or something. He quit a very lucrative job in the oil industry because it was just causing him inner turmoil and depression to pursue his passion of fitness and he's now a fitness trainer and a photographer and he's made he now makes a living pursuing his passions and it's a very inspiring story but do you pursue your time, passions for a living uh, i'm very blessed i use the word blessed i guess <laughs> I, really... I love listening to you weasel don't worry i'm not either it's okay we're just we're just we're just cashing a check it's okay it happens um, I'm not weaseling. No, I just don't like the word blessed. I'm very grateful to have the job that I do because I find it very interesting. And it intersects with another one of my interests, which is beer. Beer and taxes have a long history together. Because you drink a lot when you pay taxes? <laughs> right. <laughs> to make it palatable. Uh, Take no, a like... Serb check right down to the liquor store and, uh, you know... <laughs> Some of the earliest taxes in Western culture were imposed because in order to have access to yeast, you needed to be approved by royalty or by people who had delegated authority in their town by the king. Uh, all the yeasts were carefully controlled. And to buy them, you had to pay all of a cost that included all of the administration uh, involved, and that was considered one of the earliest forms of tax in the Western world. And before that, you could pay your taxes with beer, and it was one of the recognized means of uh, of paying the crown in like these old codes from 4000 BC of like just post Babylonian civilization. Beautiful, and you were the one that taught me about the medieval Catholic Church's tax on gruet as that relates to the rise of hop culture in beer. Yeah, so that's exactly the tax I was talking about um, in the, the king's distribution. So it was, it was post the Roman Empire that the church... That's usually when the Middle Ages authority. takes place, yeah. My, I'm just trying to describe how this authority got... I don't think the Roman the Empire caused the Middle Ages. I think it just happened afterwards in successive fashion. It's hard to say. I'll concede that it's point other... to you, Mr. Philosopher. <laughs> um, that's the other 
thing about causation that's very interesting. It's hard to tell when one thing causes another versus two things being in constant conjunct conjunction. Causation like, is not correlation. It's not. And you never actually see causation. You, uh, you can purport to prove it through experimentation, but you'll never have a guarantee that that causal relationship will inhere in the future moment. But do we have a guarantee of anything? Great point. And this is why you're a great philosopher, because you're good at uh, everything. being reductive. Literally everything. Yeah. <laughs> also that. Uh, anyway, yeah. That's exactly the tax I'm talking about. It's a tax on uh, gruit, which uh, is a word that people don't really understand uh, exactly how it was used at that time, but probably was used um, to describe these breads that were baked in order to preserve certain yeasts that were used in brewing at that time, and then disseminated through local authorities that uh, were controlled by the church and by the king at the time. Hey, where did he get those Britain hops? He grew it. Wow, it's worse than even I could do. <laughs> I love it. Oh, but I've been doing some home brewing. I've got a couple of them on the on the go right now. So have you tried? A couple. Have you tried the IPA yet? No, I thought I'd let it bottle condition a bit. I think it's probably as good as it's going to get at this point. I'm hoping at least one of the bottles that I gave you doesn't have sediment in it. I promised Dwayne a couple of bottles, so I'm going to drive up to Merrickville and just kind of leave them on his doorstep at one point. Do my oh, social nice. distancing. But no, the one I'm working on right now, so I have the ale that I, uh, the 15 minute ale from the Brewer's Pantry. Shout out to Brewer's Pantry out in. What kind of ale? Bowmanville. I don't know, man. It's like a brown one it's like a great it looks like it looks like a pilsner i i couldn't tell you i don't know enough about it i i listened to how can it be brown and look like a pilsner i because it's the syrup i don't know what it's going to look like once the extract is actually boiled it's not going to be that color it's just very intense when it's in the little bag with all the extract i just learn a lot of wordly kind of beer things from you and then i repeat them bit by bit to other people and they say wow you really know your beer because like they know so much less than you do that I know just a fraction of what you knew and I can seem smart by by uh, by proxy. That's very sweet of you to say. I don't know that much about beer, but thanks. But anyway, so the one that I got, uh, a couple of my American friends were showing pictures of Yungling Hershey Porter or Hershey Ale. So it's like a Hershey chocolate beer that is being released. Yeah, Yingling the is the largest microbrewery in the u.s well amazing i i've only East seen Coast it in brewery. las vegas i've never seen it anywhere else than that um i wouldn't mind getting some with hershey's in it but in any event i found a a, a brew place out in gatineau that just sold me a chocolate milk stout so it's chocolate caramel milk stout oh you know what i can't even remember the name it's somewhere upstairs in my living room but the real point is, I think they they're called La Shop au Malt, out in uh, out in Gatineau. But they dropped it off at my doorstep. I'm gonna probably start cleaning it tonight, and probably around the time this episode airs, it's gonna be bottled. And then, what are we now? Today's the 21st of October. 
I mean, it's probably going to be potable sometime around December. You got to let it mellow a little bit. Perfect timing for a milk stout. I love a milk stout. That'll oh, be good. right? I mean, when I was thinking of something that sounds chocolatey, I haven't had Grenville Island Winter Ale in a long time. That is, mm. I think I had my first one ever with you back at the um, the the pub where we did stand-up. The one where at U of O where the gym and the ice pad is. The draft. Is that what it's called? Yeah. Okay. Yeah, that's Lion's Winter Ale. That's a great beer. I'd recommend it to anybody. Except you think that Grenville Island is a microbrewery because it kind of sounds like it is, and then you find out it's owned by Molson. I don't know if that ruins it for you. I mean, I drink Labatt 50 and PBR, so clearly I don't care about those sorts of things. But Yeah, I don't care who makes it. I, I just think it happens to be the case that I enjoy beers that are made by small breweries because they're made well, but... I also surprisingly like Labatt Blue quite a bit. I was surprised when you said that because I always figured you to be a bit of a snob, but maybe that shows that there is a certain level of objectivity in your drinking and it has nothing to do with the actual content of the brew. Hard to say, not knowing. So we got to figure out another walking tour. We need to do a grand tour notwithstanding living in pandemic times. I just think it means we have to keep six feet apart and we have to bring our own beer since we're not going to be stopping at bars and pubs and just kind of carry it on a rucksack with us. Yeah, so it's just a heavy drinking hike and not so much a tour because we're not touring anywhere. We would see, like, beautiful scenic things. I'm thinking... Yeah, a hike. I'm thinking, no, it's not going to be a hike because hikes are in, like, you know, idyllic kind of, like, foresty surroundings. I'm thinking we start in December from Shirley's Bay and walk all the way to Petrie Island. I don't know where Shirley's Bay is. It's way past Canada. Oh, so you want to cross like the entire, uh, the entire city of Ottawa in one day with a backpack. How many kilometers is that? That's a very good question. This is now the second time I've broken my rule, but this needs to be said. This is a garbage podcast anyway. You may as well do some Googling. You know, Zach, everything I do is garbage. Or nothing I do is garbage. What is garbage? If this one is garbage, is it because you caused it to be garbage? Oh, snap. Call back. Uh, yeah. So that like is, said, that is heart... 44 kilometers, 41 kilometers by foot. That's nothing. That would be eight hours and 37 minutes by walking, assuming that we go continuously and never stop at any point to use the bathroom or, or have lunch. Yeah, that might be too much. Challenge accepted. I, I think it's very doable. Okay, well, let's, we'll see if we can carve out some time to do that you should describe the grand tour because i don't think you've ever fully explained to me how you came up with the idea and i think every little detail of the idea is so perfect okay well so there's a couple of different things there um first of all there's that show on amazon the grand tour that was sort of the spin-off from top gear when jeremy clarkson punched one of his producers for not getting him a hot dinner and then the bbc yep. fired him 
But that name came from the idea of the Grand Tour that originated among the 19th century landed aristocracy in England, where they would go to continental Europe and they would tour about before they were ready to enter the worlds of commerce, business, whatever, as sort of this one last coming out debutante party where they would learn about art and philosophy and cuisine and women and liquor and just really have a true, I don't want to say renaissance experience because we're mixing up our timelines over here, but really this this become this real polymath of of all the culture that there was to offer at the time um, and really tour about in a way that people don't do anymore. I mean, tourism is very cookie cutter, lunch tray, get in a plane, sit in coach, you know, walk in a straight line around the Eiffel Tower, take the necessary selfies and then leave. Nobody's going to go and spend three months on the French Riviera learning everything there is to know about Marseille for example, or, you know, learning to become uh, a Renaissance poet and, and writing the perfect Italian sonnet by spending a year in Milan, you know. It, it, See, that sounds like a very cool vacation, but really, we wouldn't call that a vacation. We'd call that a sabbatical. But it's not even that. For them, it's a tour. It's the idea that you're just going about and you're just doing as one does to become this fully matured, blossomed rich old white guy right so you know that was where i got the idea and it was the idea that we were going to take an entire day we were going to hopefully get away from the barrage of text messages and emails and phone calls and we we did the best we could but it never quite worked out that way such as life and we would devote it to going to a whole bunch of different bars obviously and playing chess at each of them and then documenting the experience in these lovely Sherlock's bound books that I made at the office where I would capture a picture of the place we were going along the map and then in the individual pages along with the worst possible Google or Yelp review I could find for the place so that we could just see and kind of absorb the seething rage of the most embittered customer they ever had. And that was the stroke of genius to me. That made every stop just so rich with humor and delight. I loved reading each of those reviews. While we were drinking a pint at the establishment, playing a chess game, recording our notes on what we thought about that place, and the outcome of the game. Like, I still have all those books. I do, and too. And I treasure them. But what was interesting was none of them ever lived up to the worst review. Like, I feel like the worst reviews, to bring up causation, are almost always attributed to someone just really having a bad day. Where nothing but absolute five-star valet service was going to stop you from complaining that day. Yeah, I want to go to a place where, like, instead of being served a beer, I just have the glass full of beer hucked at me, and then someone screams and chases me out of the establishment with weapons. Like, <laughs> I want to see that based on some of these reviews. The funny one was the Riverside Pub, which is right next to the old Cognos building. It's the IBM building on Riverside Drive. The worst review I could get said that it looked like the set of Cheers. It was like a, it, it was like a three star, and it was like this place is kind of dated and looks like the set of Cheers. I'm like, that's the worst thing anyone's ever written about this place. 
I'm like that. That's gotta be. That, that's a testament to that to the Riverside Pub. Shout out to the Riverside Pub if you're still in business. Absolutely, that place is a local gem, and everyone should go and give them all your money. Absolutely, get some curbside beers from the parking lot. We can do that now, right? I think so, and we should say. Riverside Pub is not a sponsor of this podcast or of either of us individually. Anchor.fm won't let me get sponsors for my podcast through them because I'm not in the United States. So apparently that's only for Americans. So as of now, I don't know how to monetize my podcast, but considering that they were going to pay me something like $15 US per thousand listeners and my best podcast to date has had 40 not not, <laughs> not yeah monetizing it might not be a huge concern for you especially you especially, positive. especially if your podcast is called who cares if you listen i think it's sort of antithetical to say you don't care if people listen but you're desperately trying to monetize how many people listen to your podcast it seems you know yeah i agree yeah that's a good point uh you've gotten good reviews though you said like what kinds of reviews you know just people saying that i have a good podcasting voice whatever uh that's true whatever that means and um people saying that they enjoy the banter a lot of people said that i seem a lot calmer than they remember especially high school friends it's shocking even like i know you now and you are much calmer on this podcast than i I don't think I've ever experienced you this calm in person. So I, I'm a subscriber to behaviorism. I mean, I've gone back and forth with my therapist on this as to whether or not it's real. But it's the idea that if you just behave as the person that you want to be, eventually by, I don't know what it is, osmosis or just sort of, you know, repeated learning, you become that. So if I just project myself as this very calm, serene kind of npr voice kind of guy who's got this very measured kind of soothing lilt to my voice maybe eventually i'll become that instead of just a loud shouting jackass yeah it sounds like lamarckian evolution exactly if i stay in the water long enough i will become a sea lion exactly uh intragenerational evolution i mean i've played pokemon that works that's my understanding. When I get Pokemon, to level 25, like... I turn into a Charizard. Yeah. Based on my review of that Game Boy documentary, that's how the world works. Does becoming level 25 cause Charmeleon to evolve into Charizard? Or is it just constant conjunction? There's no way of knowing. And there's no way of knowing if a future Charmander at that level will upgrade or whatever they call that but in the case of a video game we know because someone has programmed it so and we can say with complete certainty that one thing will lead to another because it has been so programmed by its author wrong completely wrong in fact Uh, and you uh, should know better alright you've admonished me now tell me why I'm wrong so any number of things could happen. The code could malfunction. The Game Boy could break. The cartridge could be on its last play and quit just as you're about to level up. Or there could be a quantum event 
and the thing could just change completely into like a reptile. Like your Game Boy could just transform. It could end up in a wormhole and be sent off to another part of the universe. There are a million things and more that I could list that could happen that would prevent that from occurring. And the idea that you can impose with certainty an expectation on a future relationship between one event and another is wrong. So is mathematics wrong? Because I think that's what mathematics does. Well, that's the thing. That's the distinction between uh, the empirical world and the world of thoughts. Mathematics is talking about a relationship between ideas that is kind of true by fiat, whereas science is about the real world happenings, and there's no guarantee that you can uh, predict those future events. Whereas with math, uh, there's no observational element. There's no opportunity to be surprised. This has been, without a doubt, the headiest, most cerebral of all of the podcasts that I've recorded. And I feel like we both need to lie down and take a nap after that one. Yeah, I'm uh, very sorry. I was hoping we would talk I'm not. About... I thought this was amazing. What are you talking about? I kind of thought we'd talk about the history of beer and how Kronk became a pandemic hit. And I was already to talk about the legacy of Dr. Ferguson and how beer was consumed in the 1800s during the roughly 40 years that Dr. Ferguson's Kronk style ale was made or about uh, the history of brewing up to that point or about the relationship between taxes and beer, which I did get into a little bit. But I did not think you would ask me about extremely boring topics from my masters that nobody thinks are valuable or interesting. I think they're valuable and interesting. I don't care if anybody else listens. And on top of that, the fact that I subverted your expectations happens to fit perfectly into this very long and tedious discussion of causation versus determination. (laughs) Well, that is a beautiful... Dan Harmon-esque meta wrap-up for this podcast. Love it, love it. You wouldn't tell me about metacognition, but I did a meta wrap-up. You did, a perfect one. All right, I will let you go because I think we both need to get back to our respective families. I can hear my kids stomping upstairs, but this has been a slice, and let's see if we can get together in real life and meet space at some point before the end of 2020. I would love that. And as a parting thought, I said earlier that you carved out a nice niche for yourself. I think that's true. Keep it up. You're doing great stuff. Every podcast I listen to, it's usually successful people talking about interesting things. And you've got none of that. Amazing. Zach, thank you so much. This has been a blast, buddy. Cheers. Take care. Bye. And just like that, we have another episode of Who Cares If You Listen in the Can. Thank you so much to Zach for coming on board. And thank you so much to the Nita Brewery for providing the first ever beer I didn't like from the Nita Brewery. But that's okay, because they have a lot of other varieties that are much more palatable and don't taste like boozy prune juice. A lot of interesting things in there. I think Zach sells himself short. I thought that talking about whether or not causality is a thing was very interesting for me. And that is really the only sort of reference point that I can use on a podcast. 
I think we all sell ourselves short sometimes when we try like a peacock with its feathers to impress somebody other than ourselves and you get into a really dangerous territory when you do something like that. I know I've done it a lot in my life and it's something that I'm trying to work on where by being authentic to myself I hope whatever I project is just naturally interesting because otherwise I'm just uninteresting as a person and then all these masks that I wear are just covering that up. I don't know, maybe that's too heady and philosophical, but that was sort of the conversation that we had. Also, notice I just said philosophical, like I was getting my tongue caught in the back of my throat, but I'm okay with that. I don't need to go back and quaff every little detail into order. Sometimes you just have to let these little flaws permeate through and learn to accept them. And on that deep philosophical note, I hope you enjoyed this podcast. And if you didn't, who cares if you listen? Who Cares If You Listen is a podcast recorded by me, Antonio Jambardino, and hosted by me, Antonio Jambardino. The theme song was written by me. The end credits are based on a tune by Autorito Respighi, and also played by me, badly, on my Techniques KN1400. If you have any questions, comments, or feedback about this podcast or anything else, you know where to find me. And if you don't, I probably don't want to hear from you, so you can just keep your comments to yourself. Have a good night, and take care of yourself. <laughs>